Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks Downloadable Messages. This week, Pastor Mike Yearly continues his eight-part series entitled Songs of the Summer, a study in the Book of Psalms. And today he'll bring us the sixth message, How to Get Right with God, based on Psalm 51. Well, today we're continuing the series that we've been in for a while now called Songs of the Summer. If you're brand new, this is a, a series on the Book of Psalms and uh, looking at some of the top hits of ancient Israel. And today uh, we come to a great psalm, Psalm 51, that it has to do with how to get right with God. Now, we've probably all had times in our lives where we've uh, been far from home spiritually, like the prodigal son, we've wandered. Sometimes it happens because of a series of small choices, life's distractions, busyness. We just wake up and we just kind of wake up, wow, how did I get here? But I'm far from home. Other times it comes not so much from drifting as it comes from deliberate disobedience. Times we know exactly what God's telling us to do, and we just say, I don't want to do that. And as a result, we end up taking the wrong path in life, and we end up far from home, like the prodigal son, and we're t- we need to make our way back. So the question is, whether it's through drifting or through deliberate disobedience, when we're far from home, or you know, even just out of the neighborhood, how do we move back? How do we draw close? Well, Psalm 51 is all about that. It's written at a time in David's life when he was very far from God, uh, even out of email range. I mean, he was, he was out there, and he needed to find his way back. And so he shares with us in his personal journey, some of the, the journals, some of the steps he takes to, to come back. And it's really an amazing psalm. And so today we're going to be talking about how do you find your way home when you've, when you've strayed. And uh, now some of you, I've got I to tell you, some of you today probably need to come home. And so at the end of the service, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. You know, whether you've been a follower of Jesus and you've just stopped following and you need to get back on track, or whether you've never made a decision to give Jesus control of your life and today's the day. Either way, I'm going to give you a chance. I just want to prepare you so you can listen especially well today to the steps you need to take. Now, the psalm is Psalm 51, so if you've got your Bibles, just open it up. You'll notice there on your note sheet, there's a section called Psalm 51, The Journey Home. And... I've split it up into four sections. The first six verses, I'm calling his prayer of confession. The first thing that David does is he just comes clean with God, and he he says, God, I've blown it, and he just tells us, you know, kind of where he's at. And so that's, we'll look at that. The second section, then, is called his prayer for healing. And what we'll see is that David didn't ask to be let in the back door and kind of live on the lower 40 or live in the guest house or, you know, back of the place. He, He really wanted to be fully restored to God. And so we're going to talk about what kind of prayer we need to pray, what do we need to ask for boldly when we come back. Then the third section is um, David's promise of praise. He says, God, if you will restore me, here's what I will do. And he, and he says, I want to be used again. And he, he says, if you'll restore me, this is how I'll praise your name and share it with others. And then the last section is called um, the power, his prayer for the nation. And, and in this section, he, of course, he's the king. What affects him impacts the nation, so he prays for the whole nation. So that's sort of an overview. Let's jump in. We're going to start off with the uh, inscription at the top. Notice it says it's for the director of music. Again, this is a song. It was to be sung in the temple or the tabernacle. Notice it's a psalm of David. And it happened at a specific point in his life. He, he, just, he wrote this psalm at a specific point, And it's when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, when you've committed adultery and you see a prophet coming, it's usually not a good sign. And so uh, we're going to look into that story. Now, if you, um, 
This week, if you did your on-your-own homework, you've read the story of David and his adultery and the, his uh, situation with Uriah. You read it this week in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We didn't have time today to really go through kind of the whole of those two chapters. And so what I'm going to do uh, is kind of bring you up to speed. I'm going to tell the story. So some of you are very familiar with it. For some of you, probably it's the first time you've heard it. But here's the situation. David's king in Israel. He's at the high point of his, uh, of his reign. Uh, things are going really well. His troops are out on the battlefield. They're fighting in a distant land, and a general by the name of Joab was commanding them. One night, he's at the castle. He's bored. So he goes up on top of the roof, can't sleep. And while he's up there, he looks down, and, and I don't know why she was doing this. It's kind of an unanswered question. But there's this beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. And, and she's, you know, she's there, obviously, you know, naked. And so D- David looks, and he's pretty intrigued. You know, there's times when you just need to change the channel. You know what I'm saying? Just where's the remote? <laughs> um, this was one of those moments in David's life. He made the biggest mistake of his life. Instead of going back inside and just saying no, he continued to watch this beautiful woman. And the more he watched, the more he wanted her. And so he calls in one of his servants. He says, hey, there's this lady on this rooftop over here taking a bath. Could you go find out what her name is? Well, he comes back and he says, well, um, she's the wife of Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of David's top warriors. In fact, David had this band of commandos that served him, highly loyal, that were incredible warriors. It was called the Band of 30. Uriah was one of those men. So he's one of David's top warriors, most loyal, loyal warriors. And, and so he should have been loyal to him, but he, he, he senses an opportunity. Uriah, of course, is out on the battlefield with the troops. So he, he tells the messenger, bring her back. So they come back. I don't know, they have dinner, whatever, but they end up spending the night together. He sends her home the next morning, thinks no one's the wiser. The problem is, within a month or two, she sends him a message. And so I've got bad news. The EPT is positive. And so David starts moving into this elaborate cover-up scheme. It's kind of phase one, phase two. Phase one, he sends an order to, for, to Joab, to the general, to send Uriah back with a military report. And so he gets him home, and David has him for dinner and finds out about the battle. And he says, why don't you go home and spend the night with your wife, you know? Just assuming that he would do what most men would do. And, and, but, but Uriah is so loyal to the troops in the, in the field. He's like, my buddies are in the foxhole out there. I can't go home and sleep with my wife. That just wouldn't be right. And so he, he spends the night on the porch. Next night, David goes to plan B. He's going to get the guy drunk. Then he'll lose his mind. Then he'll go home, see his wife. No, it doesn't work again. Even drunk, he won't go home and spend the night. So David has to escalate. He moves into to phase two of his plan. In phase two... He sends a, a confidential dispatch back with Uriah for Joab, for your eyes only. Does, you know, Uriah doesn't know it's inside. It's really his death warrant. The, what, the, what the dispatch says is it's just to send Joab, Joab is to send Uriah on a suicide mission. And sure enough, it works. And he's killed in battle as the troops pull back from Uriah, as Uriah is leading the charge on the wall, which you never get that close to the wall. He leads the charge, and then the troops are ordered to to pull back, and Uriah is killed. He's left out there. David murders him via his his, uh, troops. Well, David thinks the story's over. He gets news that Uriah's dead, and he's like, you know. He lets Bathsheba 
go through a month of mourning. Then he marries her and he thinks it's all covered up. What he doesn't realize is it's the start of his own personal water gate. This is like day one of the Monica Lewinsky story. You know, this is a story that is not going to end. But he goes on. Interesting thing is, is that there are no evidences of any repentance at this point. It's amazing to me how, how we can deceive ourselves when we're in sin. You know how we just rationalize it away and we just go on. We keep going to church. <laughs> we keep praying. We keep asking God's help. We keep living a double life and we just somehow think it's all going to work out. And apparently that's what David did because there's no sign of repentance. In fact, the next thing that happens, the prophet Nathan comes to do an intervention with David. And by this time, the baby's already been born. It would appear from the text, the baby seems to be born. So we're at least 9, 10, 11 months down the line. And David's just gone on. Nathan comes in. It's God's last shot at David. I'm sure God has been convicting him like crazy, but David's just been rationalizing, excusing it, minimizing it. And so Nathan comes in. He confronts David, does this intervention, and David finally crumbles. And as Nathan confronts him, he says, you're right, I'm wrong, I've sinned. Just totally comes clean, first time in about a year. Well, the scripture says in 2 Samuel 12 that God forgave him at that instant, at that very moment. Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven you, you're not going to die. However, there's going to be some serious consequences for your judgment. That's very interesting. We'll talk about this later, but there's a very important distinction in our lives that we often confuse between God's forgiveness and consequences. So God's forgiveness came immediately, but there were some very serious consequences. He said, here's what's going to happen. The son that was just born to you in Bathsheba, that son is going to die. Secondly, you committed violence against Uriah. You're going to have violence in your family for the rest of your life. You took another man's wife privately Others are going to take your wives publicly. So there was forgiveness, but serious consequences. Of course, the baby was born, the baby died, and the consequences began uh, began to unravel. But it's in that state of mind where David writes Psalm 51. And as we read it, you have to put yourself in that place where Nathan has just come in, said, you're the man, here's the consequences. David is heartbroken, his world has fallen apart. It's just hit the New York Times what happened. And what he thought was over was just beginning. And so in that state of mind, he writes Psalm 51. And let's go there now. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, would you blot out my transgressions? Would you wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin? For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Let me ask you a question. I'm not looking for a show of hands here. In fact, I'd prefer it not. Have you ever done something really stupid that changed the whole direction of your life? Have you ever done something really dumb? You just, you just say, if I just could go back, if I just could make a different decision, if I just had not returned her call, if I just not gone out with that guy, if I'd not gone to that party, if I'd not taken that first joint, if I hadn't picked up that first beer, if I hadn't stolen that little money from that I thought no one would notice, if I hadn't, and we just go on and on and say, if I just hadn't done this thing, life would be different. 
If you've ever gone through a situation, you know how David was feeling. You know how your mind replays those events over and over and over again in your mind. David says, my sin is ever before me. If you've been there, it's like your brain just keeps pushing the rewind button. What was it like for David? How many times did he lay there in his bed and think about that first night with Bathsheba? How many times did he replay in his life, here is a confidential dispatch, Uriah, take it to your commander. I know you're one of my most loyal officers. I know I can trust you. How many times did he replay that in his mind? My sin is ever before me. And that's where he is now. In verse 4, he says, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. David began to realize that whenever we sin against another person, ultimately it's a sin against God who created it and loves that person. And he says, So you're proved right when you speak. And you're justified when you judge. David realized that when Nathan came in and said, you're forgiven, David, but there is a sentence to be meted out. And here are the consequences. David realized that God was right and he was wrong. And he didn't complain. He didn't say it's not fair. He said, okay, you're you're right. We'll come back to that later. Then he says in verse 5, he Notice he doesn't blame it on anyone else. He doesn't say, I'm the king and I should be able to do what I want or it was Bathsheba's fault. What was she doing out there anyway? He says in verse 5, he says, surely I was sinful at birth. This is my issue. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And God, surely you desire truth or faithfulness or loyalty in your inner parts. You're, you're teaching me wisdom right now in the inner place. Your discipline is teaching me wisdom. And then in verse 7, he moves on this next section. In this section, he begins to pray, and it's his prayer for healing. And again, I want you to notice how bold he is. He doesn't ask to be let in the back door. He asks for God to fully restore him. That'll become important later. He says, God, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was a a small plant that they would use um, to sprinkle the blood when they'd do the sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. He says, God, I feel so dirty. Would you cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. You know that feeling when you're off track spiritually, and you just feel so dirty? You just like, God, I just need someone to like cleanse my soul. Just wash me clean. Take out the spiritual hose. Hose me down. You know, that's where he's saying. Number eight, verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. You know, when we're far from home, sometimes because God loves us so much, he will bring great pain in our life. He will crush our bones. Not because he lo- doesn't love us, but because he does. And only that crushing will bring us back. It requires that kind of pain to get our attention to turn us around. It had been so long since David had joy in his life, so long since he had gladness. He'd had pleasure. But pleasure and joy are two different categories, aren't they? Boy, the joy is one thing. Pleasure is a different. God wants to give us both joy and pleasure. David had chosen illicit pleasure, and the price he paid was joy. See, when we choose pleasure over God's will, the price we pay is always our joy. It's always our gladness. So he calls out, God, it's been so long since I've experienced your joy, so long since I've experienced your gladness. Verse 9, God, would you hide your face from my sins? Would you blot out my iniquity? Would you take the white out and just kind of white out this chapter of my life? Create me a pure heart, O God. 
renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, many times when we walk away from God, we think that we can walk away from God and still remain basically the same person. In other words, that, yeah, I'm doing a wrong thing, but I'm really a right person. I'm just kind of acting out of character at the moment. You'll hear this oftentimes. Have you ever said this about someone? I don't get it. It's just, it's like he's not even himself anymore. It's like she's not even herself anymore. It's not the old person I used to know. Well, guess what? You're absolutely right. They're not the person you used to know. They have changed. (laughs) Our self is a moving target. Your self is a response of all the choices you've made. And guess what? When we make wrong choices in our life, our self morphs. It changes. We become a different person. Have you ever known someone who is really sensitive, connected with God, loving people, and they begin to walk down the wrong path? And guess what happens? You watch how they become insensitive to people, self-centered, irritable. It happens, doesn't it? It changes. As we choose the wrong, we change in the process. David realized he needed a new heart. His heart was bad. His heart had gone bad. And so he says, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. I'm steady, a steady on God's will. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He'd watch what happened to King Saul. King Saul, his predecessor, had walked away from God, and God said, okay, I'm removing my spirit from your life. And his life had fallen apart. David had had front row seats on that. David played the harp for him while that was going on. He said, oh, I don't want that to happen, God. Don't leave me. I don't want to be out there on my own. God, whatever you do, don't take your Holy Spirit from my life. Please, God. And he says, restore to me the joy of of your salvation, grant me a willing spirit. In other words, willing to do your will to sustain me. And so that's his prayers. He calls out for God for full restoration. Now, the next section is his promise of praise. And basically in this section, he says, God, if you will heal me like this, I will give you praise. I so much want to be used again to touch other lives like I used to be. He says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. God, save me from blood guilt. That's murder of Uriah. Save me from blood guilt. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You come through for me. Heal me. I'll share it with others so that others can grow through my experience. And then a couple of very important verses, verses 16 and 17. David says that when we come back to God, It's very important that when we come back to him, we don't try to buy him off. And so he says in verse 16, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What's God looking for when we come back? In those days, Israelites often mistake. They always thought, oh, God, obviously, I want to get right with God. Um, I I need to give sacrifices. And so they'd bring these sacrifices, very expensive sacrifices. You know, bulls are expensive. You know, ever try to buy one? You know, it's like, hey, you know, very expensive. And so they'd come back to God. Now, they didn't want to obey the God. They just wanted to get him back on their side. So they come and they give a sacrifice, kill the bull, kill the sheep, spread the blood, do the thing. Great, I'm back. No broken heart, no contrition, no willingness to change. Just do the ritual. 
Well, guess what? We have the same tendency. Don't, have you ever noticed this in yourself? You're far from God. You want to come back. You want to buy him off. No, we don't kill bulls. What we do is we'll say things like, um, uh, well, God, I'll say these prayers. I'll, I'll go to confessional. You know, live like hell, go to confessional. Uh, if you're from a Catholic background, you know how this works. It's like, well, I'll sell a certain amount of Hail Marys or, or our fathers, right? You kind of buy God off. Hey, Protestants, we have our own ways. We just do it differently. We, we have our own ways, you know. We'll work with junior high, uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, financially, oh, let me cut a check, right? That's what God really wants. God's after my money. All the TV preachers say that. Let me cut him a check. You know, and so, so in our own ways, we come back and we don't want to obey. We don't want to do what God asks. We want to buy him off. And he says, hey, God, I know that you're not into the sacrifice thing. What you want is a broken and a contrite heart. You know, we talk about breaking a horse in. I'm going to break the horse. Of course, you don't want to break the spirit. You want to break the will, Right. Because once you've broken the will, then the horse and rider can be a part in this beautiful partnership. It's amazing. And what David is recognized is we need to have a broken will in our lives. That everyone needs to come to us a place where we, our will is broken to where Jesus can ride us. And there'll be this partnership with him in the saddle of our lives. And so he says, that's what God's after. God's after a brokenness. He's after contrition. He's, a, he's after open hands to say, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. That's what God is honors. And then this last section is his prayer for the people. And of course, he's king. And so he prays that in your good pleasure, God, make Zion prosper. Zion's another word for Jerusalem. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. That's where we're defensible. And then, and then there will be righteous sacrifices. Not like the sacrifices just talked about that were phony to buy God off. Then there'll be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so there it is. Psalm 51, written by David at a time in his life. His life was falling apart, trying to find his way home. And along the way, he gives us some great markers for the trail. Here's the steps you need to take. So let's jump in. Let's talk about how to get back on track when you're far from home. Number one, start with a true confession. The first thing we need to do if we want to get back on track with God, and it doesn't matter whether it's you've just kind of blown it recently or you've been away from God for 30 years. It doesn't really matter. The first step we need to do, we start with a true confession. Now you say, what's a true confession? A true confession is an honest statement of the facts about who I am and what I've done. It's no excuses, it's no minimizing, it's no rationalization, it's no blame. It's a God, you're right, I'm wrong, here's what I've done. It's just an honest statement about what has happened. And this is not always easy to do. As human beings, we have a tremendous capacity for self-deception. And so what happens oftentimes, we start coming back to God. We don't really want to come back just honestly. We want to come back, but we, we, we come back with like a partial confession. You see this in David. I pointed it out. I mean, he has this amazing sense, really sordid tale, and yet he lives as if life just goes on for the next nine, ten months. Now, how do he live with himself? Well, I'm sure he, he did it like this. Well, I'm the king. Kings are better than normal peons, you know. Uh, hey, you know, I mean, it's a tough job. I need a pressure release, you know. I, I need, you know, everyone needs some fun. I'm getting older in my life, 
you know, need to live a little. Um, hey, well, what's the big deal? I probably would have died anyway. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like we have this amazing ability to, to, to come back and not really tell the truth about ourselves. So I love this in Psalm 51. Let's look at it again. Let's, let's look at how he makes his confession. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. That's a biblical word for sin. Blot out my transgressions. Next, wash away all my iniquity. That's another biblical word for sin. Cleanse me from my sin. That's another biblical word for sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sins always before me. See, he's really owning up here. Verse 4, against you, you, you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You see that evil? You see how he's owning it? Look at verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful. You see what I'm saying? He's not making light of this. And this is so important because many times we come back to God, we want to get right with God, but we don't really make a true confession. Now, this is so important. I want to spell this out here, okay? Because I've been doing this a long time, this whole ministry thing. I see this happen all the time. We'll be far from God. We make a half-hearted confession, and then God's power is never released in our life, and we wonder why. It's so important that we start with a true confession. So there on your note sheet, four marks of a true confession. Let's, let's go. Number one, a true confession is, number one, no excuses. You know how this works. Well, I'm really sorry, God, but... Okay, the big but gets in trouble all the time. You know, I didn't realize. I couldn't help it. It was just too hard. I didn't know. Now, it's okay to explain what's happened in our life. You know, when we get off the track, it's okay to explain and say, well, here's how I was deceived. That's one thing, okay? But excuse goes the next step. And it, it says it's, well, it's not really my fault because there was these mitigating circumstances. I want you to notice that David made no excuses. Number two, it means no blame. Notice that David did not say, well, you know, God, I know I shouldn't have done it, but I mean, Bathsheba, what was she out there for anyway? I mean, what do you expect me to do? I'm like a red-blooded, you know, Israelite. Most men would have done that. You know, it's her fault. I mean, what was she doing out there? He didn't blame his parents. That's a, that's a popular one in our culture, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I did it, but, you know, if I grew up in this kind of family, and that's why. And, and therefore, you know, I can't really be held accountable for that, you know. No, David said, I was sinful from birth. He takes full ownership. Doesn't blame it on his parents. He doesn't blame it on the stress of the job. Doesn't blame it on anything. He says, look, it's my fault. Yeah, I see this many times in interpersonal relationships, husbands and wives, um, people that go through a divorce, friendships. Here's how the blame game is played. Well, I know I shouldn't have said that or done that, but if you understood what they did, (laughs) okay, what have we just done? We've just shifted blame, haven't we? Here's one. Well, yeah, sure, I lose my cool sometimes. Okay, I admit I've got a little bit of anger problem, but if you knew what I had to put up with, what is that? This has been going on in the human race since day one. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden. What does Adam say? Hey, Lord, the woman that you gave me. <laughs> Guys, we've been using that line ever since. Huh? It's like, 
Well, if you understood what I have to put up with, if I had a different wife, right? The woman you gave, oh, ladies, you're not off the hook. <laughs> what, with, what did Eve say? Well, the serpent. You know, the devil made me do it. Right? And ever since, we go through life playing the blame game. David didn't blame anyone, took full responsibility. A third thing, it's no rationalization. Well, everyone's doing it. Can you imagine? I I guess David's like, hey, wait a second. I'm the king. If I see a woman want the woman, I'm the king. I don't play by the normal rules. I'm above the rules. I make the rules. I'm the king. All the other kings have harems of their choice. It's like, why am I the only king? You see, you see how the rationalization works. Uh, here's one for no minimizing. You know, it's to minimize. It's like, well, yeah, I did it, but it's really not that serious. I mean, it's, I, yes, I did it. Okay, I did it, but it's not that big a deal. Well, what's that look like? Well, guys, let me talk to us for a second. One of the biggest issues, I think, today, the men have to deal with this whole issue of pornography. You know, and this, this, this whole issue of it's just so readily available and it's right there on your screen and it's click away and the whole thing, instant gratification, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, how many times I've talked to guys who've said, you know, it's not really hurting anybody. You see you see, that's, that's minimizing, isn't it? Is that the truth? Ask your wife if she agrees with you on that. My hunch is she'll have a different take on it. Ask your girlfriend. How does she feel about it? Drugs and alcohol. You know, those around us say, I think you've got a drinking problem. Oh, no, I can stop whenever I want. Everyone needs a couple beers at the end of the day. Okay, well, maybe it's four or six sometimes. All right, so we, we minimize. Oh, yeah, there's a problem, but it's really not that big of a problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I lose my cool every once in a while, but hey, I'm Italian. <laughs> you see what we do? We can minimize it. So here's what, we come back to God and we say, God, I, I really want to make a confession here. I was wrong, but you have to understand, here's my excuse it wasn't my fault. Here's the blame. It really is no big deal. And you know what? It's not that big of a thing. And then we wonder why we don't reconnect, you see? See, if we're going to get back with God, we've got to come and lay the cards on the table and be honest about who we are and what we did and say, man, I have sinned. I've blown it. You're right. I'm wrong. No excuses. I did it because I wanted to do it. It was my choice, and it was wrong, and it was evil. And that's where reconnection with God. God's like, great. Now we got that straight. You're being honest. I'm being honest. Let's move on with our life, you see. But as I said before, even God won't do relationship with us if we're not honest. All right. Number two. The second step we need to take from the psalm is we need to resist the temptation to bargain with God. Now, we, I pointed out in this text, God's not interested in our sacrifices. He's interested in a broken and contrite heart. So I don't have to, to kind of spell that anymore. But I, I will say this, is that many times in our life, we want to get back on track with God. We want to say, I'm sorry, but we don't want to change. And that never works. We want to 
be on good terms with God without submission to his will. We want renewal without repentance. Will never work. So, for example, there's a couple. They're living together, not married. And they, they, they want to get right with God. They come to church, whatever. But you know what? If you want to get right with God, you have to stop sleeping together until you're married. See? There's no other way. And so many times we want to draw close to God while holding on to our sin. He says, no, no, no. I'm looking not for your sacrifices. I'm looking for a broken and contrite heart. You need to either get married or stop sleeping together before we can do our relationship. Um, A person has an affair. He's very sorry about his affair, but he's not willing to leave the woman and go back to his family or the woman for the man, vice versa. Um, it's the person who says, yeah, I've got a drug problem. I, I need to get help. I want to get help, but they don't get help. It's the person who is necessarily caught up in the pornography, but you won't um, sell your computer at home or put on one of the best systems and have your wife monitor it, you see. It's like, I want to repent, but I'm not willing to take the steps. It's the person who's sorry for stealing the money but not willing to pay it back. See, God is looking for a broken and a contrite heart. Those are the sacrifices he will accept. And a broken person, a person with a contrite heart, is willing to submit and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, what do you want me to do? And then follow through. Number three. The third thing that we have to do if we want to come back to God is we have to accept the consequences. I pointed out when we went through this story that there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. And part of coming back to God is being willing to accept his judgment on what the consequences will be. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. Let's say that I have a, a teenage daughter and the curfew is, whatever, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, whatever. And, and the deal that we've struck is that if she's going to be out past that time, she needs to call me. And so one night she doesn't call me. She says, you know, I was out with my boyfriend. We were just having such a great time. And um, then before I knew it, it was 3 o'clock, and so I want to know, well, how great a time really was this? And I'm not feeling so good about this story. And so we're going to have to talk about that. There's been a breach of the relationship, right? She's violated the code of conduct in our relationship. And so we're going to talk about it. And hopefully she's going to come around and say, Dad, you're right. I was wrong. I should have called. I agreed to do that. I, I blew it. And the moment she says, I blew it, I'm going to forgive her and say, well, great. You know, the relationship is restored. But that doesn't necessarily remove all consequences, does it? Like there may be consequences, like she may be put on restriction or maybe limit her car usage or maybe you don't get, go out for a week or even whatever the deal is. But there's, there's a difference between forgiveness, which has to do with the, the internal integrity of the relationship, and consequences, which has to do with the results of our choices. And David understood that difference. And so when he came back to God, if you look at Psalm 51 and verse 4, He says, against you and you only have I sinned, God, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and you're justified when you judge. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about when Nathan came in and said, okay, what you did was wrong. God's forgiven you, but there are consequences, serious consequences, and he laid them out, right? The baby's going to die. You're going to have violence in your family. Others are going to take your wife. There's consequences. And David at that point didn't say, wait a second. That's not fair. Who do you think you are? 
That's too high a price to pay. What David said is you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He accepted the sentence meted out. You see that? And it's so important for us when we come back to God after being away, sometimes there will be consequences and we just don't get this. You know, it's a guy who leaves his family. He comes back to God. He repents again. And then he expects that God will automatically give his family back. Like, maybe, maybe not. It's the guy who's been a heavy drinker his whole life. He repents and comes to Jesus and his past is forgiven. In an instant, does God promise he'll heal his liver? Not necessarily. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The person who's embezzled from his company, works at a large computer firm and he's embezzled from his company and he gets caught and he, he repents of that and he asks God to forgive him. Will God forgive him? Absolutely. But then he goes out and tries to get another job in the computer industry May or may not get it, right? But many times it's like we assume that this is our God-given right for him to restore all things as they were before. It's not always the case. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But it's very important. And here's the point. We have to come to a point, and this is sometimes takes a while for us to get there on the way back, where we say, okay, God, you're God, I'm not. Whatever consequences you say I have to pay, you are right when you judge. And I will accept those consequences. I've seen sometimes guys that say that left the family sort of thing and it's gone on for years and they went off with another woman or whatever and, and they come back and the wife's still un, and married and, and he's like, but she needs to come back to me. It's the right thing. It's what I deserve. I repent it. And sometimes I have to look him in the eye and say, there is no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee. You see, sometimes there's consequences. And part of repentance is coming to the place where you accept, okay, God, you decide, not me. There's a fourth step. And the fourth step is that we need to request a complete restoration. This is so great. I love David because in the midst of his sordid tale, which is really unbelievable. I mean, if we read it today in the New York Times, you know, this is President Bush had slept with someone else's wife and then had a hitman knock him off. I mean, we were going like, whoa. And that's exactly what happened. You had the king of Israel abused his power and did this, you know. And yet when David comes back, he has such a confidence in God's goodness that he's ready to make the big ask. He doesn't ask, hey, could I come and live in the doghouse? He's like, God, would you please heal me totally, completely? Would you give me a new heart? Would you blot out my past? Would you renew? Would you give me a fresh start? Would you use me again in other people's life? I mean, he got asked for the moon. And guess what? He gets it. He gets the moon. He says, God, I would love to be used again. If you'll heal my life, I'll tell everyone about it. And God says, that sounds like a great idea, David. Welcome back. How about if you write some more Bible? Uh, hey, I, we'll call it Psalm 51. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? God is so ready to move on with our lives. Once our repentance is complete, he's so ready to leave the past behind. He's so ready to say, let's just take a white out and blot out that chapter. Let's move on to something new. I love that about him. He's so great. This story has an amazing ending. You know, in Psalm 51, 1 and 2, I want you to notice something here, where he says, 
He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your, what's the next word? Unfailing love. I want you to underline that. Unfailing. David had failed. God never fails. Your unfailing love. I don't know what you've done, how far away from God you are. I don't really know. But you know what? My hunch is you probably haven't slept with someone else's wife and then had her husband knock off in the last week. And some of you go, yeah, yeah, I did that. Well, great. Welcome to Rocky Peak. <laughs> this is a place of fresh starts and new beginnings. And aren't you glad you got a gut unfailing? But most of us, we've done things in our life is less than that. And we wonder at times, some of you still wonder today, this thing you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, four years ago, well, you still feel like, has God really forgiven me? It's like, well, guess what? If you haven't slept with someone else's wife and then knocked off her husband or spouse, you're probably in good shape. Because God's love is unfailing. You see, and when we come back with a true repentance, he, he aims for full restoration of our relationship. No second-class citizens here. You write Bible. And on top of that, there's the rest of the story. It's so great. You know, so, so David, um, he has Uriah knocked off. And after a month, he marries Bathsheba to kind of cover up things. And they have this son. And as you know, God said the son would die and the son dies. But here's the rest of the story. You know, David had several wives. And so he had several heirs to the throne. But the next little boy that was born to David and Bathsheba, they named him Solomon. And the scripture says in 2 Samuel 12 that the Lord loved him. (laughs) Oh, how much did he love him? He said, well, I want you to give him a special name. His nickname is going to be Jedidiah, which means loved of the Lord. What's that mean, Lord? It means I want him to be the next king. (laughs) Now, is that grace or what? What? Is that amazing? You knock off a guy, take his wife, and through that union, God gives the next king when he could have had several heirs. I think David, God wanted David to know, David, yes, you blew it big time, but you know the past is the past, and you've repented, and we're starting over. And to show you that, I'm going to bless this little boy and put more out my love on him in a special way. You know, some of you here, have gone through divorces that never should have happened. And it eats you up. You left your spouse for whatever reason. You never should have. You know that now. A million times you've gone back and said, if I had to do it again, I would have stayed. I would have made it work. But in the meantime, you've gotten remarried. And there's a deep question in your heart, can God really bless this relationship? Because I never should have been married in the first place. I want the story of Jedediah to be your story. That the moment we come back and say, I was wrong, I never should have left, this is wrong, God comes and he's going to say to you what he said to, to, to David. David, I want you to love your wife. Yet You never should have married her, that's true. But from this point on, we're starting, I want you to love your wife and I'm going to bless your family. Let's move on, you see. Isn't that great? Amazing God we serve. Let's pray together. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to give you a chance to come home today. I told you at the beginning, some of you 
have made a commitment to Christ before, but you've not really been letting him lead your life. You've been living a double life. And, and it's time for you to come home. And I've laid out today, here's how you do it. You make an honest, true confession. Stop making excuses. Stop rationalizing. You tell it like it is. You submit to his will for your life. You say whatever you want, God, a broken and contrite heart. You accept the consequences, and then you ask for a full and complete restoration. And while our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I want to give you a chance just to do that. And there's others of us here that you've been coming to Rocky Peak a while, perhaps, and you've been watching and listening and Something's happening in your heart. You know that something's real here, that somehow God is here in a unique way and you're experiencing that, but you've never really given your life to Christ. It's not that you don't believe. You believe that he's who he claimed to be. You know the facts of his death for you on the cross and how he died for your sins and how he rose from the dead. You get all that, but you've never had a point in time where you've asked Jesus to come in and to forgive you personally for your sins that are ever before you. And you've never asked him to create in you a pure heart and give you the joy of his salvation to come in and take over your life and be your leader. And today I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to say a simple prayer right now while our heads are bowed. And if this is the desire of your heart, then just pray along with me in your mind as I pray. Dear Jesus, I want to come home. I I ask you to forgive my sins, to create in me a pure heart, to give me your salvation so that I can spend forever with you. If you just prayed that prayer in a couple minutes, we'll be collecting the offering later on the service. And while our eyes are still closed, if just do me a favor of, would you write on your registration card, we call it a keep in touch card, just write me a note saying, Mike, I asked Jesus into my life today or something like that. And we'll do a couple things. We'll pray for you this week especially. But secondly, We'll also send you a letter with some steps about your new relationship with Christ and and the next steps in the journey, some suggested steps. Father, as we come before you today as a congregation, we are so thankful that you died for us so that psalms like this could be written and possible. We come now to you, Lord, to celebrate your death and resurrection, and we commit ourselves anew to follow you. Amen. I'm glad you're here today. Glad you came. And it's just exciting what God's doing here at Rocky Peak. Now, next week, um, we're going to be talking, the message is called Hardwired for Worship. And uh, Jesus said that God is on the lookout, that he's searching for true worshipers. And the question is, are you that kind of person? What does it look like to be a true worshiper? So I'm real excited about the message. It's already done. It's in the, it's in the bank. You know, it's ready to go. And uh, so I, I'm excited. I hope you are. And uh, I would like to see you back next week as we, uh, as we talk about what does it mean to worship God, be a worshiping community together. So we look at several of the Psalms where David talks about that. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.